you can open your Bible in Revelation chapter 1, but let's pray before we go there. Father, we are so humbled when we come to your word. It really is a treasure. There's nothing more precious to us than your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us minds that are attentive, hearts that are ready to hear, humble, teachable. Lord, we pray that as we consider this beautiful and marvelous text, you would do a work in our lives. And Lord, that you would overcome all of my weaknesses, all of my uh, frailty, and that you would deliver your message to your people. And then they would be blessed, and they would come to love Christ a little bit more. We love you. We come to you in the name of Christ. Amen. You know, as we, as we turn on the news and as we check out what's happening around us, we can easily be a little discouraged. Would you agree with that? You look around and it's, it's a circus. It's crazy. Uh, you know, from wicked, ill-motivated political leaders to pastors that are failing morally left and right uh, to people that have, in a real sense, seemingly lost any sense of decency. It's, it's sin is taking over from every corner. Whether you go on social media, uh, TV, radio, anywhere, every day you can hear something you really didn't need to hear, right? You, you can learn something you really didn't need to learn. I mean, just an example, you know, we, we went from, you know, homosexuality to transgenderism, you know, people believing they're not the, the gender they've been assigned at birth, uh, which is already crazy, but we kind of got used to that. And so, uh, this week I was re- reading online and I found all kinds of titles and, and some people consider themselves agendered. Do you know what that is? That, that is people that they are neither male nor female. They're just nothing. They, they don't have gender. Uh, from that, uh, you, you may have heard of Wolfarianism. I don't know if these are actual like, conditions, but these are people that believe they're wolves. And you can, you can literally apply that to anything, objects, animals, all kinds of things. From that, I don't know if you heard of this, fictionism is the people that they identify as fictional characters. Usually it's video games or movies or something. I mean, we go from bad to worse, right? Sin is taking over everything. Our minds are thinking everything. Speaking of bad to worse, I don't know if you heard of this. I don't think this has been accepted, but it's been proposed, which is concerning. Transableism. These are people that identify as disabled. It's sad. It's really sad. It's, it's a circle. It's a circus. And it's a circus of death. But, you know, we are part of a great church, right? We, we have great pastors. We have the means. You know, we, we, we know the truth. We have the tools. And so maybe for us at Grace Community Church, we are not quite as enticed by all of these pressures uh, even though it can really be daunting for Christians, right, in this kind of environment to remain faithful, right? It can be difficult, you know, to swear allegiance to the truth, right? To, to swear allegiance, to stand firm on the teaching of God's word, to reject that which is false and to embrace that which is right. Because we may wonder, right, will I be able to keep my job if I choose not to call such and such coworker by their preferred pronoun? Or will I, will I be able to keep my kids, right, my children, if I decide to teach them the truth and not just merely affirm what they, what they want? 
I mean, can I even send my children to school where they're likely going to be indoctrinated and brainwashed and all of that? And so we're trying to protect ourselves and our kids and our families and all of that. And it can be really daunting because out there is madness. But again, we know, Grace Church, we have, we have the tools. We have pastors. We have resources. And so maybe outside pressures are not as threatening to us as they could be. And so we go on with our life, and we keep walking, and we keep being faithful, and we are obedient, and all of that. But then as we do that, we are faced with another issue, right? We're struck with another problem, not the world, not the devilish agenda of Satan out there, but what? Our own flesh. And so we want to do well. You know, maybe the world is really not, the pressures of the world has not been really a problem to us, but then as we walk, you know, we lack self-control with our wives, with our husbands, and anger, lust, pride, arrogance, you name it. And at times, it may seem that the battle is lost, right? And you may be very discouraged. And so, Lord, like, how can I know, how can I make sure that I'm not going to bring shame upon your name like, like all of these other people? How can I make sure that I'm actually going to end up there faithful, at the end of my days. And so today I want you to think about this question, right? How can you make sure that you will continue steadfast in the truth? How can you make sure that you will find strength and encouragement for your soul beyond anything that might happen or that might be around you? And as I was thinking about this, really there is no better text for us to go than Revelation chapter one. And so if you haven't opened your Bibles yet, We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1. You can go, it's the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1. And as you get there, you know, as as you study this book, you you may have heard a few comments here and there, but as you read it and as you go through this book, you will learn pretty quickly that this is really not one of those like codes that need to be cracked, uh, mysterious kind of a, a text that no one knows what it says, even though contrary to popular opinion, uh, this book is actually, uh, is actually the very opposite. Look at the first verse. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Right? The point of this book is to reveal, is to unveil something. And that something is, that someone is, Jesus Christ. And so the point of this book is not to confuse you. It's not to give you a headache and trying to find little codes and ways to understand it. But it actually should be easy to understand should be easy to be understood and to be, uh, to be applied and to be lived to the point that John says, the writer, that, all, that this book is a blessing to those who hear it and to those who put it to practice in verse 3. And so uh, consider the context, right? John is writing at the end of the first century, around the year 95, 96 or so. Believers were undergoing persecution under dominion, uh, Domitian, Emperor Domitian. And so uh, John himself was kind of reaping the, the effects of his faithfulness. In verse 9, we see that he was on the island of Patmos. And so he was suffering persecution, and he's writing to believers that are suffering persecution. And so think about that, right? If you're writing a letter, a long letter, to believers or to friends, brothers and sisters, that are going through trials and difficulties and persecution, all of that, what would you do? I mean, would you write them a, some kind of a manual that needs to be... Uh, read with a dictionary and some kind of speculations about who is the next president and all of that. No, right? You would write to encourage, to exhort, to, 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 to give them a, a reason to, to continue to trust and continue to believe and continue to fight. You would write it in one word to give what? 
hope, right? Hope. As we look around us, and as we consider what this world is, where this world is going, and as we look at our own lives, and as we struggle with our own flesh, we need hope. We need hope. And that is exactly how John writes this book, and that is exactly how John starts this book. So we're going to see verses 7 and 8, but just for the sake of context, we're going to read from verse 4, uh, 4 through 8. Read alongside me. John says this, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So reads the Word of God. You see, brothers and sisters, John begins this letter with a dose of encouragement, right? I mean, I could literally just stop here. This is just so rich, so encouraging. It begins with, by, by reminding believers of their present hope, right? Verse 4 through 6, look at that. John, to the seven churches are in Asia, what's the first word? Grace to you and peace from whom? From, from John? No, right? From him who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits that are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. I mean, this book begins with a wish, with a bestowal, with a granting of grace and peace. And this is true for all believers. All of us have this. So John starts this book by telling us one simple thing. You can do it. You can end your life faithful. You can follow after your leaders. You can bring glory to the name of Christ. Because you have grace, you have God's unmerited favor, right? You have his strength, you have, you have what it takes, you have what you need, you have the tools, but also you have peace which means that despite what's happening around you, you not only have just the strength to do it, but you also have the peace, the, the inward rest, the calm to know who is your father. You have the calm to know that God is in charge. And, and this wish, this, this, this granting, this bestowal comes from the triune God. Have you catch that? Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come from the seven spirits, which if you read in Zechariah chapter 4, that is the title that John is going to use in reference to the Holy Spirit. And then from Jesus Christ, I mean, the, the triune God start this book by telling us, you can do it. Trust in my grace and in my peace, and, and you have that. You have the tools. But then again, you know, God knew that, you know, he was not gonna, Christ was not going to come back two minutes after John finished writing this letter, Right? Like God, I mean, we are in 2023, at least 2,000 years after, right, or so. So God knew that this was going to be a long process, at least from our perspective. 
And so, I mean, because the Christian life is not like a sprint, right? You're not just running 100 meters and you're there. No, it's, it's a marathon, right? And if, you ever, if you've ever ran a marathon, and frankly, who, who hasn't ran a marathon? Um, <laughs> but if you ran a marathon, right, you know that as you're running, what's your question, right? How long, right? When is the, you see, running a marathon is so traumatic that even if you've never ran it, you know the answer to the question, right? <laughs> It's, it's, it's how long? And John knew that, right? And so, yeah, yeah, Lord, we have the tools, we have grace, we have peace, but, but how long, right? How long? And that is our text. Revelation 1, 7, 8. Here, John, or we may say even God, underlines two aspects, not just of the present assurance, present hope of believers, but two aspects of their future anticipation. Two aspects of this glorious future anticipation. And this, this is so detailed because John really wanted you to get it, right? He wanted you to understand, like, you're not living fixing your eyes on what around you. You're not living fixing your eyes on your own circumstances. You're fixing your eyes on Christ. Christ. And so that is actually our outline. Two aspects of Christ's glorious return. We're going to see, number one, the glory of his return. We're going to see in verse 7 that John presents this return in a way that is so magnificent and glorious and majestic. And, and that should be enough for us to just leave this room excited about this truth and excited about living faithfully, excited about witnessing and, and, and living and pursuing holiness and, and living the Christian life. Christ is coming back, the glory of his return. And then number two, we're going to see the certainty of his return. It doesn't end just with the declaration that Christ is coming back, even though he could have, right? He didn't need to do more than that. But he moves forward and he tells us, this is certain. And you can trust in this. No matter what you're going through, bad family news, wayward children, financial situation, you you name it, you know. You know your circumstances. You can trust that he is coming back and you should live your life in light of this truth. Let's start. Number one, the glory of his return. Look at verse seven. John writes this. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen. So it is. Amen. You see, like in the beginning when John just started this book, verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, even here, as he presents this glorious future anticipation, he brings them back to Christ. Because friends, the more we think about Christ, right, the more we we spend time pondering and really basking in the beauty and the, the truth of Christ, the less we think of what? Of our struggles, of our trials, of our puny little problems. And so that is the solution to everything. Thinking of Christ, thinking much of him, considering him. And what better doctrine to encourage discouraged believers, what better doctrine to give refreshment to the, to the soul, to those that are dry, than the glorious doctrine of Christ's return? It starts with this word, behold. You know, this is used 25 times in this whole book. And every time John uses this word, uh, it does that to, to, to point to a, some kind of a shift. You know, John is saying, you know, all that I've told you right now has been beautiful. I mean, think about that, right? The Trinity itself, the Trinity himself, he's telling you, you have my grace and my, I mean, what could be better than that, right? Why would God care about me? What could be better than that? And John says, behold, 
He is coming back. You know, this really matters. The point here is, if you have to remember one thing, you have to remember this one thing. This one thing truly matters. He is coming. And friends, isn't this true? Right? Isn't this the most sanctifying doctrine in Scripture? Right? Knowing that he is coming back. That we're not just walking aimlessly. We're not running a marathon that is never going to end. Right? There is, there is an end point. There is an aim. And it's the most beautiful aim. He is coming back. I mean, the moment you understand this truth, your life has to change. It has to change. I mean, what motivated the apostles, right? What, motivated, what motivates constantly our brothers and sisters that are dying for the faith? What motivated them in the first century to go out and be killed for this? I mean, they had seen Christ resurrected, which is a pretty big deal. But beyond that, they knew that he was coming back. And they had to be ready for that. They had to work. He's coming back. Present tense, he is on his way. He is coming. Do you remember the last time we saw him in Acts chapter 1? Ben read this for us earlier. Acts 1.11. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in the sky? Why are you there looking in the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will do what? Will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He will come, said Luke in Acts 1, and John here, at the end of the Bible, right, at the end, the last message God had delivered to his people, John says, he is coming, present tense. He's on his way. He's walking. He's here. He's coming. Shouldn't this fire you up? Shouldn't this give you energy and excitement, motivation to be faithful? Shouldn't it motivate you to be a better husband, a better wife, a better child, a better worker, a better pastor? We're going to give an account to him. Titus 2, verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. I mean, think about that. Looking for the blessed hope. Hebrews 9, 28, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Are you eagerly awaiting him? Spending a lot of time here because this is the point, right? Is this your heart? Are you thinking this way? Is this what's motivating what you do and anything you do? the certainty that Christ is coming back and we have no time to waste. We have no time to waste. Or maybe you're being a little complacent. Right? Maybe, maybe, you're in, maybe, maybe your big house is enough. The nice car, the comforts this world can offer, maybe, maybe they have robbed this joy and this excitement about his return. One author said this. I mean, I wish, I wish I said this. I wish these were my words. He said this. Oh, that he and I were together. Oh, when Christ and you shall meet about the utmost march and borders of time, at the entrance of eternity, you shall see heaven in his face at first look. You will see salvation and glory sitting in his countenance and between his eyes. Faint not, believer, the miles to heaven are but few and short. 
Is this what encourages you? I mean, faint not? Are you fainting in the work of Christ? It keeps going and it says, there are many heads lying in Christ's bosom, but there's room for yours among the rest. <laughs> From yours? Really? And so what? Right? So what? And he continues to say, therefore, go on and let this hope go before you. Sin not in your trials and the victory is yours. Pray, wrestle, believe, and you shall overcome and prevail with God as Jacob did. You see? Sin not. As we think of Christ coming back, the encouragement, the exhortation should be, be holy. Pursue the truth. Live in light of this truth. And he keeps going and says this, Oh, if I had to swim through seven hells to reach him, if he would but say to me like he said to Peter, come unto me, I would go unto him not only on the sea but on boiling floods of hell if I might but reach him and come to him. I mean, these are strong words, but, but is this your desire? Maybe we're not thinking this way, but, but do we want to think this way? Is, is, this, what is, is this what characterizes our heart and our, and our devotion to him that, that we shall see him and we shall see him soon. I mean, is your heart jumping when you hear he is coming back? I know, I know it's far removed from us because this happened 2,000 years ago or so, but, 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 but the word of God is true. Is your heart jumping when you hear these truths? The reason why I'm asking all of these questions, right, and I'm spending so much time here, it's because the truth of the return of Christ, it's only good news. The truth of the return of Christ, it's only good news to those that are in Christ. And so by examining your motives about how you feel about this, you should realize that this might reveal much about your soul. Uh, have you trusted in Christ? I mean, are you coming to church just because that's what you've been doing? because that's the right thing to do, because I need to be part of a church? Is, is, is the reputation that you have with other people your idol? I mean, is, are there other things that come before a true love and desire for him? In, in other words, have you trusted in him? Have you trusted that his life was enough as a substitute for yours? Have you trusted that his death paid the penalty for all of your sins, and only by trusting in him and repenting of your sin you can have peace and hope and grace. Because if that is not you, then the return of Christ, it's really not good news at all. But I trust and I know that most of you are in that category, right? I trust that most of you have trusted in Christ, have believed. Most of us are there. So we just need a little encouragement. And so as we think about this, as we think about the return of Christ, if you're a believer, are you living like one? Are you living like a Christian? What would your family members think if they knew you were a Christian? What would people that really know you think if, you, if they knew that you carried the name of Christ? Are you living in light of that truth? What's keeping you from doing that? 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says this, Therefore, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness 
in the fear of God. First John chapter 3 says this. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God now. And it, is, it has not appeared as yet what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is, like the return of Christ. But look at what he says in verse 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed, everyone who has this hope, everyone who is in Christ, what does he do? Purifies himself just as he is pure. So no matter where you are, whether in Christ or outside of him, this truth should push you towards him, right? If you're not in him, you should repent of your sin and trust in him. If you are in him, you should take a greater commitment to love him and to serve him and to get rid of all trifles and vanities and, and time-wasting activities and just give your life with this. But then he keeps going. And he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. He is coming with the clouds. What does that mean? Well, it means at least two things, right? He's coming with the clouds. It speaks about the location of his return. He's coming with the clouds. Remember in Acts 1, verse 9, after he had said these things, he was lifted up, and while they were looking on, a cloud received him out of their sight. It was coming, it will come in the clouds. In verse 11, it says, he will come just as the same way he, you've seen him go. He is coming from above, from, from the heaven. But not just that. It doesn't just mean that. It's not just telling us details about the location of his return. It's telling us something much deeper, much more profound. It's not just telling us about the location of his return. It's talking about the nature of his return. It's going to be a glorious return. When you look at the, in the teaching of Scripture in general, but Old Testament, New Testament, you, you'll learn pretty quickly as you read through it that whenever you see the clouds, often they're connected to, to the idea of glory. You know, for instance, in Exodus chapter 16, we see this. It came about as Aaron spoke to the entire congregation of the sons of Israel that they looked towards the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. A few chapters later in chapter 24, verse 15, 15 and 16 says this, then Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain and the next phrase is, the, and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. You see, there's constantly this connection between the clouds and the glory. First Kings 8, verses 10 and 11. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So the priest could not even stand and minister in it because the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. You see, there's this constant connection. And the New Testament is not different. It's the same thing. In Matthew 17, verse 5, we read this. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said this, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. See, there's this constant connection. Matthew 24, 30, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power, and great glory. So yes, it's telling us that Christ is coming back from above, from the sky, but there's more. It's also telling us that he is coming with great glory. And I mean, the next phrase just gives it out, right? John says this in verse 7, Revelation 1. 
He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. I mean, do you know anything else that was ever seen by every eye? No, right? There hasn't been anything, and there will be nothing else. It's just this. This is going to be the most glorious event in history. The king is coming back. He's coming back. Mark 13, 26. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. The first time he came in a manger, the lowliest of all places, right? The second time, he will come from heaven, the highest of all places. The first time, only a handful of people saw him. Shepherds, lowly people. The second time, who is going to see him? Everyone. Everyone will see him. Presidents, governors, all of everyone is going to see him. The first time he came to serve and to be served, and the second time he is going to come to reign, to have dominion over everything. Christ is coming back, and everyone, all of us, will see him. Now, what's going to happen when he comes back? We cannot get in too much detail, but look at what this text says, okay? What's going to happen when Christ comes back? It says this, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Now, here John is presenting a general group of people, right? Every eye, everyone, will see him. And there's two subgroups that he is highlighting, two different groups, right? Those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth. Like, he's making a division. Those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth. And then there's one action. They will mourn. They will mourn. Now, why does he do that, right? He could have said, you know, every eye will see him and everyone will mourn over him. Why does he do that? I, I believe there is, the, the, the reason why he does that is because even though everyone is mourning, uh, this mourning is going to lead to different results, to different results. Let me explain what I mean. Let, let, let's, let's start by explaining this word first, okay? Mourning, mourning. What does it mean? You know, th- this word is used about eight times in the New Testament. It, it can also be translated with cutting, to cut, to smite, to strike. It's used when the people were cutting the palm trees, uh, in, uh, at the triumphal entry for Jesus is the same word, cut, to mourn. Of course, in that sense, it wasn't mourning, it's the action of cutting, but, but it's the same word. In the LXX, in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's, it's used in 1 Kings 18, 28. And there you see the, the encounter with Elijah and the prophets. They were uh, trying to invoke Baal. Do you remember that? Do you remember that text? And it says there that they were cutting themselves because, because Baal was not coming. And so it's, it's, a, it's a very graphic word, which basically means that it, it portrays uh, someone response to an understanding of a great wrong, right? When you understand that there's something that is not the way it's supposed to be, and there's this mourning, this sadness, this, this contractness of heart, that is the word. Now, it says that everyone will mourn, all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and all those who pierced him. Now, who are, who are these people? Who are those who pierced him? Well, in Scripture, we know that those who pierced them, usually the responsibility of piercing Christ was given to the Jews. You know, technically the Romans did it, but, but in, if you go to the book of Acts, in chapter 2, uh, Peter is preaching the gospel, and in, um, in verses 22 and 23, it says, Men of Israel, listen to these words, and then it keeps going in verse 23, and says, The man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men. So the responsibility of piercing, of, of nailing Christ to the cross was the Jews. So here is speaking about the Jews. And then what about the other group, the, the, all the tribes of the earth? I mean, this could be comprehensive, all the tribes, everyone. But specifically, John uses this, this phrase in the book of Revelation. You can see this in chapter 5, verse 9. You can see this in chapter 7, verse 9, 11, 9, and so on. There's, it's uh, all over, verse four, chapter 14, 6. Speak, speaking about the Gentiles, everyone that was not a Jew, everyone, all the tribes of the earth. So the Jews and the, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And so what, what's the difference between the two? Why, why pointing out those that pierced him? And so when we encounter issues like this, we, we, a, good, a good rule of thumb when understanding and studying Scripture is to see if there's any other text that can help us, right? Other texts that can help us understand this better and give color to what we're seeing. And so how do we go about looking for that text? One good thing to do is, well, what, what has John leaned on so far? What, what has John used so far that we can go back and see, oh, is there anything else there that is informing this, this information? And so far, we know that John has used the book of Daniel, and we're going to see it soon. And we see in, in, chapter, in uh, verse 4 and 5 that he's used the book of Zechariah. You know, when he borrowed that title, the, the seven spirits, he's going to use it again. But in speaking of the Holy Spirit, used, that's, that's found in Zechariah chapter 4. So is there anything else in Zechariah that can help us understand this issue? And, and the answer is yes. So you can come with me to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, verse can go to verse 10. That's where we find this, this same passage. You're, you're going to be amazed by the similarities of this text. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says this. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so on, on the Jews, right? On the house of David, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, the spirit of grace and supplication of mourning, so that, What's going to happen? After this spirit will be poured out, what's going to happen? So that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like bitter whips, weeping of a firstborn. You see, Zechariah is telling us that at some point in the future, God will pour out the spirit of grace and supplication to the point that his people, the Jews, will look on him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. But this mourning is not quite as negative as we might think, judging the word, right? Because they will mourn as one, as one mourns for an only son. They will mourn as one who will weep weeperly because of the, the weeping of a firstborn. It will be a mourning of repentance. They will really understand who Christ is. And they will mourn because of what they've done and they will be contrite and they will repent. And that is what Paul says in Romans 11 that all Israel will be saved. God's grace will be poured out on his people and they will mourn. Well, the same text in Zechariah chapter 13, just a few verses later, it says this. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. They will be washed cleansed by his grace. So what about the other group? So far we've seen that what's going to happen when Christ comes back? There's going to be universal mourning, but all of the promises that he, had, that he had pronounced in the Old Testament will come to fulfillment. 
Everything will be completed. No, uh, no phrase is going to be left undone, right? Everything is going to be done. Christ will fulfill everything at his coming back. But what about the other group? Well, yes, they will mourn all the tribes of the earth, but it won't be a mourning of repentance. Look at what says 2 Thessalonians. Look at what 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7 says. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. 7 to 10 says this, And to give rest to you who are afflicted, and to us as well as the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, verse 8, executing judgment or vengeance on those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes back to be glorified in his saints on that day. Later on in Revelation chapter 9, we read this, verse 21, and they did not repent of their murderers nor of their sorceries. You see, they will repent. They will, they will, they will mourn. They will not repent. They will mourn. They will mourn in fury. They will be frustrated seeing his face because they hate him. And the book of Daniel, last text, and then we're going to go back to the Revelation, and then we're going to um, put it all together. But the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel said this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, same language, and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. See, what's going to happen when Christ comes back? All things will be made right. All things will be made right. And every knee will bow before him, even those who hate him. Because he is Lord of Lords, whether we like it or not. And so maybe now you, you may be thinking through all of this, and you're thinking, man, there's so much injustice. There's so much sin. There's so much ugliness in this world, and, and society seems to be going crazy and all of that, and you kind of want to do something to fix that, right? There's a big movement today. You want to be part of the fixing. You want to change that. But friends, remind, remind yourself of this. You are not Christ. You are not Christ. He is going to turn everything right. He is coming back and he is going to do that. But that is not our responsibility. Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do justice? And so even as you think about your own life, injustices you've received, that you really would like to see it made right, be reminded of this truth. It will. It will be made right. So what's our responsibility as Christians? What, what's my responsibility in the midst of all of this as I await and I love this and I love the return of Christ as I am waiting for him to come in the clouds and I can wait to see him? What, what should I do? Philippians chapter 3, verse 13. Listen to what Paul says. One thing I do. What does he do? Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the price of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
I forget what lies behind and I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. I keep striving and I keep pursuing holiness. I mean, the, the author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men, not war, peace, and the sanctification, the holiness, the purity of heart without which no one will see the Lord. Matthew 28, you all know this, right? Verse 19 and 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all that I commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What's our responsibility as Christians? To subdue our hearts, to kill sin, to put on righteousness, to preach the gospel, to follow Jesus, right? To follow Jesus and to help others follow Jesus. To follow Jesus and to make disciples and to teach them what Jesus teaches in Scripture, to, to, to believe the truth and to, to pursue it in our own hearts. In one word, Paul says this, look carefully how you walk, in Ephesians 5, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time, Right? Redeeming the time because the days are evil. The very words of Jesus, Matthew 24, 42, stay awake, stay awake, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Friends, the only way to join what John says at the end of this first verse, verse 7, you see that? It says, so it is to be a man. The only way to really join that is to be found in this great work, in this great work. What's keeping you from looking carefully how you walk? What's keeping you from pursuing and subduing your own heart to pursuing the truth, to understanding the gospel? What's keeping you from doing all of that? This is the only way for us to really join the choir here and say, yes, amen, come back. If you shall come tonight, would that be good news for you? And if it is not, what has to change? What has to change? But it doesn't end there, right? Because, because he's so gracious to us. Because you can already hear the, the, the comments and you can already hear the skepticals, right? Yeah, he's coming back, right. When was this written? You can hear the questioning and the doubting. Yeah, he's coming back, but yeah. Are you sure? And that is why he moves from just the glory of his return to the certainty of his return in verse 8. Look at what, what verse 8 says. It, it stands out. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega says the Lord God. I mean, God takes over here, right? God takes over. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What is, what is God doing here? What is John doing here by giving us this word? Well, he's telling us that there is certainty in his return. I mean, God knew that he wasn't going to come back two days after John finished the book, right? John wrote in the first century, God knew that it was going to be a few years, at least 2,000 or so, right? We're here. And so he wanted to make sure that his precious people, that us, would have certainty about this. Because this is a great motivation for us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And so, can I be sure that he's coming back? 
To be fair, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, he didn't have to say this, right? Of course he's sure. If God said it, he's sure. But he's so kind and he goes above and beyond and he puts himself on display here. And he, and he presents to us three attributes, three perfections of his own character, of who he is, as to say, I am signing the document. This is God speaking and he's saying, he is coming back. And he points back to his omniscience, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, to his eternality or aseity, I'm the one who is, the one who was, who is to come, and he points back to his omnipotence, the Almighty. God is saying, you can be sure on my own very name that this is going to happen. And because this is true, as we read in the quote early, live like it is true. Live like it is true. Let's look at it together as we come to a conclusion here. It starts with his omniscience, right? It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. Some people may come and say, you know, but yeah, I mean, what is the surety of his return? You remember 2 Peter chapter 3? I mean, this is like 30 years after Christ left. And Peter writes, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. And they're following their own lust. And they will say what? Where is the promise of his coming? I mean, for since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. I mean, people are mocking, and even in our days, right, we see it all the time. Is Christ really coming back? Yeah, right. But maybe he didn't really know. And even amongst Christians, some people believe that God is still learning, which is absurd. But look at what he says. I am the Alpha and the Omega. What are those? Letters of the alphabet, right? I am the first letter, and I'm the last letter of the alphabet. I am all knowledge. There is nothing that escapes my understanding. There is nothing that escapes my knowledge. I know all things. And I'm telling you what? He is coming back. You can trust this. God himself, the one that created knowledge, is telling you he is coming back. Our very own Peter Sammons write this in his latest book, The Forgotten Attributes of God. You should read it. It says this. Speaking of God's omniscience, God perfectly knows and exhaustively knows everything about himself and his creation, past, present, and future. But he continues, but you need to hold tight here, okay? Because you might have not thought about God in this way, but listen to this. God, our God, knows both what he has ordained and what he has chosen not to ordain. Think about that. What he has ordained and what he has chosen not to ordain. This knowledge includes his knowledge of all possibilities which he has chosen not to ordain, such as possible people that will never exist, right? Possible lives they could have lived, a whole range of possible worlds he could have created but determined never would exist. I mean, friends, if this God, if this God is telling us he is coming back. You can trust him, right? He is coming back. There's no doubt about it. He is coming back. But then you can already hear some other people say, okay, yeah, but God created everything and he's out there. He's not really here. Maybe because he's not here, maybe there is something, you know, that escaped him or someone else moved the, the cards in a different way. And so maybe things are going to be different. You know, maybe he's not coming back. And he continues, not just his omniscience, but also his eternal nature. I would say his aseity, and we're going to explain this in a second. He says this, 
says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Now, of course, this is speaking about God's eternal nature, right? He is, was, and he's coming. Like, that's him. He's never changing, unchanging. From eternity, I am, Isaiah 43, 13. But it's much more profound than that, right? He's saying, I'm the God who is, who is. This is what we call a seity. Namely, God is in and of himself. God is. And everyone and everything else find his being in him. So it's not just that God is out there or whatever he created. No, if God was not, nothing would be. He's the source of all life. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have done two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. There's no life apart from God. He is the one who is. Acts 17, 28, Paul says this. In him we live, move, and have our being. Isn't this so powerful? He's not just telling us that God has always been there. He's telling us if he was not, nothing would be. Everything comes from him. And so how can we think that this is not true, or maybe you can challenge yourself and think about this. How in the world am I living as if this is not true? When we know for a fact that it is. The one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come has affirmed it, has signed the document. He is coming. He is coming. What would be the last challenge? The Almighty, the Almighty you can imagine people already saying, yeah, you know, he knows everything and he's aware of all things. And yeah, in a sense, you know, we live because of him. But maybe, maybe we have a level of freedom, right? Maybe there is some things we can do or maybe Satan has done or maybe angels or demons or whatever that, that have somewhat thwarted his plan and his purposes and his, his goals, right? Maybe, maybe God is not as powerful. I mean, after all, 20 years ago was written, right? Where is Christ? Is he coming? And look at what it says. No comments here, right? The Almighty. The Almighty. God's omnipotence. God can do everything he pleases to do. The Almighty. And really, there are no comments necessary here, right? This is so clear that even John lives it there, or God. The Almighty. That's the end of the point. That's the end, period. Proverbs 18, verse 10. As we consider God in his all power, the name of Yahweh, the name of the Lord, is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is set securely on high. Isn't this true? How beautiful, how marvelous truth. You can trust in the God that can do all things? Daniel chapter 4, listen to this. Verse 34 and 35, you've heard it many times, but listen, consider these words. Daniel writes this, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Nothing. But he does, according to his will, in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one, says Daniel, 
no one can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? Why? Because he's the Almighty. He does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3, but our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Whatever he pleases. And so friends, if you're not in Christ, again, this call should warn you. You're not in charge. Christ is coming back. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that? And if you're in Christ, brothers and sisters, I don't know if there's any other truth that should encourage us more than this one. I mean, seriously, our Savior, our Savior is coming back. And he's our Redeemer, and he loves us. And there's place with him in his kingdom for us, for me. And so as we think about this truth that is as certain as God is, shouldn't we live accordingly? Shouldn't we strive to be holy and to love others and to love God and to serve him and to preach the gospel and to do anything we can do? I mean, what else could I do, right? That should be the question. What else could I do, Lord? And so even if you're a believer, the question is the same. Are you ready for his return? You know, praise the Lord that we are if we are his, right? We are sealed and safe in him. But are we living like it? In conclusion, I want to conclude with this one quote, and then we're going to pray. Listen to what John Calvin said on this text, on this issue. He said this, Let us not hesitate to await the Lord's coming. Not only we longing, but also we groaning and sights as the happiest thing of all. As the happiest thing of all. He will come. He is coming to us. And he is coming as our Redeemer. Is this a reflection of your heart? With groaning and sights as the happiest thing of all. Let's pray. Father, we are always so challenged when we come before your truth. And even though this morning was a reality that we all knew very well, Christ is coming. Our prayer, Lord, is that you would not allow the professionality of the big church and the microphones and the cameras and you not allowed all of this, Lord, to fool us into playing the game. Grant us, Lord, all of us the grace and the mercy to be sincere with our own hearts. Because for some of us, this is the most beautiful and the happiest news of all. Our dear Savior is coming back to take us. But for some of us, that is not the case. And so, Father, I pray that your grace would be abundant this morning, that we would not be distracted by what's, what's coming next and what's, what's for lunch, but that we would be really introspected, that we would do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, to examine our hearts, to see if we are in you, in Christ. We know you're a gracious God, and we pray that you would be pleased by extending this mercy to us. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved. We hope you enjoyed this message from our guest speaker. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Please note, law prohibits the unauthorized copying or distributing of this audio file. Requests for permission to copy or distribute are made in writing to the Grace Life Pulpit. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit, all rights reserved.